0: Welcome to Crossroads, the broadcast ministry of Montgomery's First Baptist Church, where you can discover God's personal plan and power to conquer your problems through Jesus Christ. Join us now as God's Word heals, encourages, and enlightens your spiritual life. Come with me now, please, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 will start in verse 1. It may help you to locate this piece of paper entitled, Jesus Performs the Operation of Transformation. And that title is based on the primary purpose of Jesus. Jesus comes here to transform us. A few weeks ago we were looking in Luke chapter 5 and we saw how Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee and He encountered this fisherman named Simon. And uh, He changed him. He changed him from silly Simon into Peter the proclaimer of the gospel and the world changer. And then last week we went on a journey with Jesus right outside of Capernaum, and we visited with Levi, the tax collector. And we saw how Jesus transformed a hated tax collector into a beloved gospel writer named Matthew. And his book is the first of the New Testament. You see, Jesus is in the business of transforming. He calls himself a doctor who performs the operation of transformation. So, here's the point. If Jesus can transform people like Peter and Levi and me and you, he can transform anyone. So we want to go with him to this wedding over in Cana of Galilee and see how Jesus operates. Well speaking of a wedding did you hear about the wedding between two antennas? Two antennas got married. It wasn't much of a wedding but the reception was spectacular. And and here let that soak in. And then let me ask that you receive a great truth. Matter of fact write it down. Changing water to wine was Jesus' first sign. Changing the water to wine was Jesus' first sign. Now at heart I'm a Bible teacher so I want to take just a few moments and dial you into some great Bible truths. For instance in the Gospel of John did you know that there are only seven miracles which are called simians or signs? The first one is turning water to wine in John chapter 2. Now there are seven of them. In contrast, in the Gospel of Mark, there are 38 miracles. Now, all of these signs have a special connection to the identity and the purpose of Jesus. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 8, Jesus gives one of the seven I Am sayings. And He says in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after Me will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And what does Jesus do? to create a sign that backs it up or validates it, illustrates it. Well, in John chapter 9, there's a man who's been born blind. He hasn't seen the light of day his entire life. And Jesus touches his eyes, and this man has sight. So, he moves from being blind to sighted. Isn't that this beautiful illustration of what Jesus came to do to take us from light to darkness? And here, another illustration would be in John chapter 11. Jesus makes this astonishing statement. It's Arguably the most far-reaching statement ever heard on planet Earth. Jesus stands before a grieving woman named Martha, and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though you die, yet will you live. Do you believe this? And she affirmed that she believed it. Then what did Jesus do? he illustrated or validated with another one of his signs when he went to Lazarus' tomb and he said, open up that grave. And he called Lazarus from death to life. You see, these signs have deep meanings. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first sign, the first miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And essentially what we're going to learn here is when Jesus turns water into wine, This means that Jesus has the power to transform any component of your life. He can take you from defeat to victory. He can take you from sour to sweet. He can take you from zero to hero. He can take you from out of control to being Christ-controlled. He can change and transform you. This is the point of this sign. Well, let's plunge into it. John chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited and His disciples to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever He says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots. They were set there for the Jewish custom of purification, for washing up. They contained 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Then He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter, and they took it to Him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, He did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn it, they knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom. He said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, but you have kept the good wine for now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come very humbly and intentionally into your presence and we ask that you bring us to full spiritual attention. Lord, right now we promise to set aside every distraction and open wide our ears and our hearts so that your spirit can deposit your transforming truth in each of us. We pray for that help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what I want us to do. Let's examine this first miracle of Jesus and find four aspects of it. Let's begin with a marriage. Would you make that note? A marriage. This is a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now, the location of Cana is about five miles north of Nazareth. If you've ever been to the Holy Lands, the first place you go on the tour generally is Nazareth, and then you can travel right up to Cana. I always love maps. I won the geography award in sixth grade, so this is kind of like one of my things. But there's the Mediterranean, not very far. Nazareth is just five miles up the road. And from Cana they went over to Capernaum, which is located on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I've been to Cana. Matter of fact, Mary Ruth and I, on one occasion, went to the very wedding chapel that commemorates this moment, and we did a vows renewal. Uh, I promised her this I said, Mary Ruth, I have one request. If you ever leave me, I plan to go with you. That's kind of the extent of my vow. So we're stuck together. So here, this is a very special place. Cana is the site of the wedding that Jesus attended. Now, in those days, a Jewish wedding was from two days to two weeks. It was quite a festival. And in those days, the Jews did not focus on the bride. They focused on the groom. As a matter of fact, the groom paid for everything. Now, because I have three daughters, I like that Jewish idea (laughs) of the guy paying for everything. The guy paid for everything, and they had this big, entourage, they would have this big festivity, and what the groom was trying to do is validate at the wedding festivity that he had the wherewithal to take care of his bride and his future family. And by the way, ladies, after that groom married his bride, you would then move in to the father's house, and so they would all live communally. Well, this is a first thing that I want you to do is understand the location and the context of this moment. It is a wedding feast. And I love the idea that Jesus was invited and He attended. You know, sometimes we get this infected picture of Jesus as He is serious, He's headed to the cross, He's a stick in the mud, He's a killjoy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know when I see Jesus, I see Him with this beaming, gleaming smile. And here's my contention, the Lamb of God was the life of the party, you can be sure of that. The Lamb of God was the life of the party. Wherever Jesus came, joy arrived. Oh, He was the Lamb of God, the life of the party. And He came to that party, and He noticed that there was a problem. What was the problem? They were running out of refreshments. And, and the one who identified it was His mother. I mean, who knows? Maybe Mary had a wedding catering business on the side. Or or perhaps this young man was related to them. And she was sensitive to the social embarrassment that this would cause because, I mean, if they ran out of refreshments, this would stain his reputation as a provider. So so there was some social grace here on the line. So Mary comes to Jesus, and she basically says, Jesus, uh, heads up, they're running out of refreshment, and can you do something about it? Now you look at verse 4, and just on the surface it kind of looks like a harsh answer, doesn't it, ladies? I mean, if your son answered you like this, you may not take it in the right way. Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? (laughs) Okay, like if your son said, hey Marion, what do I have to do with you? You may not have taken that very well. But this is, I want you to put this into context. The word woman Is the Greek word gune. And this is the very same word that Jesus used from the cross in John chapter 19 when Jesus was speaking tenderly to John and assigning the care of Mary to John. Do you know what word he used? This very word gune. Really, in Alabama, we would say ma'am. He is saying, basically, Jesus is saying, ma'am, now this is not really my time schedule and this is not really my job to alleviate the social embarrassment of somebody who did poor planning, but I'm going to do it for you." And this is what we see here, Jesus changes His game plan to help a nameless couple with a mundane problem. And do you know what kind of sign that creates for me? Fill in this blank. This means you should invite Jesus into your every day and everything. Invite Jesus into your everyday and into your everything. He's the Lord of your everything. I mean, think about it. Invite Jesus to your party. Invite Jesus to your marriage. Invite Jesus into your family dynamics. Invite Jesus into your work, into your play. Invite Jesus into every aspect of your everyday. And do you know what the result will be? Make a note. Philippians 4.19, my God Will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What He did for that couple He'll do for you if you invite Him into your everything. Well let's move from the marriage to His method. His method. I, I want to show you how Jesus operates. Now Jesus certainly to alleviate this problem and provide more refreshment could have summoned angelic assistance. That would have been impressive to have a group of angels show up with refreshment. I mean, they could have brought angel food cake or something like that. I mean, I don't know. Uh, But uh, he could have levitated these jars. He could have snapped his fingers and they would have been filled to the brim with 180 gallons of water. But do you see what I see? You, You see, he used common people like you and me to impact his work for eternity. He invited partners to come and to help him. He invites participation For instance, in John chapter 6, this huge crowd is gathered, and the people have grown famished. They have been feasting on the Word of God, and they forgot about the fact that they hadn't eaten for a long time. And Jesus said, let's feed them. Now, He could have again had an angel catering service show up, but He finds what? Through the assistance of Andrew, finds a little boy who's got a bit of a lunch, some fish and bread, And he allows that kid and Andrew to partner with him in feeding this vast multitude of people. That's how Henry Blackaby puts it. Henry Blackaby puts it like this. This is so wise. Find where God is at work and join Him. That's a good mantra for living life. You find where God is at work and then you join His work. So here's the sign. God uses partners who obey. That's how he operates. God uses partners to obey. The key ingredient is to be obedient. Now, notice Mary's phrase. She knew that Jesus was going to acquiesce to her request. And so she says to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Now, friends, that's a good way to live life. The key ingredient is to be obedient. So, Jesus gives this odd order. He says to the servants, there are six stone jars here, earthen vessels. They'll hold about 30 gallons apiece. Now, note that this is not drinking water. It is purification water. It is washing water. It's not even clean. So, this is an odd request. So, he has these six stone jars filled up to the brim. It's 180 gallons of water. And frankly, they do not hesitate. They just immediately comply. So, an obvious question comes, what is Jesus asking you to do? You know, friends, that's why it's so important that we read the Word of God to get our orders every day. I mean, Jesus is the general officer. And so, we should read the orders every day. What does He tell us to do? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, be a witness, starting from your neighborhood, your Jerusalem, go all the way to the ends of the earth. He says, in this world of takers, you become God's giver. He says, overcome your inherent narcissism and your selfishness and become my reflection of living love and service. And that's what Jesus tells us to do. But in order to understand what He says to do so that you can obey it, You've got to learn it so you can live it. Now, here's my greatest observation about the problem of the church and the problem in this church. We are educated beyond our obedience. Now, I want you to let that soak in. I believe we are educated beyond our obedience. That means we know so much more than we do. Oh, my friend, uh, the great truth is this. There are so many people who base their discipleship on information instead of obedience. Let me explain that to you. If you base your discipleship on information, all you do is this. You think you've come to a worship service, just like this one, and you've done God a big favor for an hour in the week, and you salute Him goodbye as you drive from the parking lot back to home with your lives unchanged. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want you to just acquire information. He wants you to do action and implementation. He wants you to become obedient. That's why Jesus says, God prefers obedience over sacrifice. So the call of God for our lives is this simple. Oh, it's fine to go to another Bible study, and we love Francis Chan and Beth Moore and all the great Bible teachers. But if all you do is become obese on spiritual information and there's no action or or implementation then you are dishonoring the Lord. You are not acting in obedience. I mean, what would you think about a football team who did this? Anybody watch a little football lately? What if the team only huddled? <laughs> Can you imagine the Auburn or Alabama team? Just they get in a big huddle and start telling jokes and high-fiving. And next thing you know, they ride by the clock and they get a delay of game penalty and they don't even care. They're just kind of enjoying the huddle. Enjoying talking about the football and the theories of blocking and tackling? Did anybody watch that game? No. You didn't come to play a football game by watching them huddle. You want to see them do something, move the ball forward. What if you were a cook? And what if you enjoyed recipe books, but all you ever did is watch cooking shows and read recipe books while your family starved? What kind of person would you be? Or let's imagine that your job is to be an auto repair person. Man, you just love reading about auto repair and how to fix every type of engine and motor and electronic, but you spend all your time reading and you never fix a broken car. That would be absurd. My friend, I think there are a lot of Christians in that boat. We have a lot of information, but we're lacking in implementation and obedience. The key ingredient is to be obedient. So let me ask you, what are you doing for the Lord? Are you reading His Word and then following His orders? Listen to what Mary said, just do what He says. That's your goal. Let's go to number three, the miracle. It's a unique miracle. It's a quiet miracle. There are no words, no commands, no laying on of hands. He didn't bind Satan. Jesus didn't even touch anything. He just tells the head waiter to taste it. Now, salvation is an act in which Jesus transforms people into a new creation. We learn in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he is now a new creation. The old is passing away, and the new is coming. So, what do we have on display here? Would you make this note? Transformation pictures God's purpose. Transformation pictures God's purpose. Let me condense it into three simple statements that are easy to remember. Number one, here's how the world works. God forms. Sin deforms. Jesus transforms. That's pretty much the whole ballgame right there. God forms. He makes every one of us. And yet we're all sinners by nature and choice, and that sin deforms us. And yet Jesus has the power to swoop in and transform us. And we see this on display here. I mean, that's what the Lord does. He took Peter and He transformed that man who denied Jesus into this powerful preacher at Pentecost. There was that prostitute named Mary Magdalene. She was filled with demonic spirits, and yet she became this delightful proclaimer the first proclaimer of the resurrection. There was Saul who became Paul, the arch enemy of the church and becomes the chief evangelist for Jesus. There was this guy named Jay Wolf who was selfish and narcissistic and secular, and God one day made this wolf into a lamb. I was a goat who became a sheep because Jesus changed me. You see, the parade of the saints Every saint carries a story about how the Lord Jesus has transformed them. Let me remind you of one of my favorite stories. It's the story of Louis Zambrini. Laura Hildebrand captured his story in the book Unbroken, one of the greatest books I've ever read. You might remember that Louis was born in California, Torrance, California. They called him the Torrance Tornado. He could run so fast. He made the 1936 Olympic team, He got Olympic gold. When World War II started, he signed up. He was in Hawaii, and on a mission, his plane crashed. He spent 50 days in open water, survived miraculously, and what was the result? He was captured by the Japanese. He spent almost four years in a Japanese prison camp. He was tortured. He was beaten, and yet at the end of the war, he was released, and he came home to a hero's welcome, Louis met this beautiful girl, Cynthia, and he met, and they married, and everything looked like storybook happiness, but it began to quickly unravel. You see, he had gotten a lot of money because he was a war hero, but he made some bad business decisions, and he lost it all. He started to drink incessantly because he was haunted by post traumatic stress syndrome from his four years as a prisoner of war. His marriage started to unravel. They just had a child, but he was drinking himself into oblivion. And then Cynthia, looking for help and hope, in 1949, heard about a young evangelist from North Carolina named Billy Graham. And he was preaching in Los Angeles. She went and was radically saved. And then, do you know what happened? She brought Louis to that crusade. And he walked down the aisle, gave his life to Jesus. He went home and he said, Darling, you've got a new husband tonight. He found all of his secret stashes of alcohol. He poured them down the sink and he never in the next 70 years took another drop of alcohol to drink. He was set free, he was freed from his nightmares and he became a changed man. He was water into wine, he was a sinner that became a saint. Oh, my friend, that's what the Lord does. He is in the business of transformation. So, I would urge you to understand one last truth. This brings me to the last point. It's your message. Oh, yeah, Louis Zamborini has a great testimony, but so do you. If the Lord Jesus Christ has touched your life with the miracle of transformation, you have a message. Now, Now, let me point out something to you. At that Jewish wedding, there were probably 30, 40, maybe 50 people there. And what happens? A remarkable thing happens. The waiter tastes this wine that comes out of the washing water pot, and he doesn't know it. And, and he doesn't spew it out. He says, this is the best wine I've ever had. And now there are 180 gallons of it. Now, there's 40 or 50 people. I don't think they drank all of it. That'd be a bunch of wine. 681 liters, actually. So, what do you think happened here? Man, this is a picture of abundance. Always remember, God supplies abundantly, doesn't He? You know, when you had that feeding of the 5,000, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. Why? Because Jesus will always give you more than you can think, ask, or imagine, in accordance with Ephesians 3.20. You see, He's a God of abundance. But also, watch this. He says... Most people serve the best wine first, but you've saved the best for last. This is a picture not only of abundance, but of anticipation. You you see, some of you are here right now, and you think you've already experienced your best. You think what's behind you is better than what could possibly be in front of you. May I lovingly tell you, you are dead wrong. You see, the Bible says the best is yet to be. Think about it. When you follow the Lord Jesus, you're carrying a cross, but one day you're going to wear a crown. Think about it. Right now you're in the race, but one day in the Lord, you're going to be at His rest. Think about it. Right now you're carrying the burdens of life, but with the Lord you've got the blessings of life. Listen to how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4. Don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an incomparable eternal weight of glory. Do you know what this says? The best is coming. Ah, don't give up. Don't give in. Hang in. God has His best coming for you right around the corner. Well, that tells me, Then here's the last fill in the blank, you are a living sign for our living Savior. That's the goal. You're a living sign for our Savior. It says here in verse 11 something that's fascinating. It says, when they saw Jesus turn the water into wine, what did it do? It inspired belief. Well, that's the whole goal of the book of John. We learn in John 20, verse 31, that these things he wrote so that we would believe, and in believing in Christ, we would have eternal life. In other words, we would become living signs of how God has changed our life. Uh, years ago, I went to Houston, Texas, and I went to this place called the San Jacinto Monument. Have any of y'all ever been to Houston or the San Jacinto Monument? Well, if you go out there, it's kind of an impressive monument. Of course, Houston is named for Sam Houston. And he was the general who led Texans in 1836 to go out and defeat Santa Ana and uh, take on the Mexican army. Now, in true Texas fashion, at the base of that sign, it says it is 567 feet tall, parentheses, 12 feet taller than the Washington Monument. You know how it is when you're from Texas. you got to have the biggest. And, And yet, when you look at that monument, you think, well, what does it commemorate? Let me tell you what the sign. Here is the sign written on the base And here's what it says. With the battle cry, remember the Alamo, the Texans charged. The enemy fled in disorder. The battle was won. Victory was complete. And Texas was free. That's what that monument means. It's a monument to the victory of Sam Houston over the Mexican army and the freedom of the Republic of Texas. Do you know what your life is designed to be? A living signpost. For the living Lord that proclaims Jesus has changed me and he can change you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this picture of your purpose. You transform. Thank you for sharing worship with us. We trust God has used this broadcast for your spiritual growth and encouragement. If this ministry has touched your life, please let us know. If you'd like to share in the cost of this broadcast, you may send your gifts and support to First Baptist Church. Your partnership with us will help strengthen and extend this ministry and will be greatly appreciated. And remember, when you are at the crossroads, follow Christ.